0: Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers, with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kirk Damon. Today's episode is brought to you by Encom International and the Master Control Program, Artificial Intelligence to Enhance System Security and Corporate Asset Management, end of line.
1: All right, welcome back, everybody, to Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy. I am your host, Ben Siders. Ben Siders. And this is Kirk Damon, the other host, as usual,
0: Kirk, like the captain of the Enterprise.
1: The other guy. Uh, Today's topic is file sharing, and uh, I guess we'll talk about BitTorrent probably specifically since it's, I don't know, probably the most popular protocol right now, but there's a lot more to it than than just that. Uh, But before we get into the the meat of our subject today, we have something very important to discuss, Kirk. Yes, we do. Uh, Star Wars, The Last Jedi, uh, postmortem and predictions. We were originally going to go through, I think, kind of point by point, the 25. Uh, predictions, but it, it, got, it occurred to us that maybe some people still haven't seen it yet, so we thought we'll we'll avoid spoilers, but. Uh, maybe
0: give general thoughts. What did you think? Did you enjoy it? I actually really loved it. Um, I think you know from the, just even the tweet I sent you. Uh, he saw that Ben saw it a day after I did. Yep. Um, so you know, we which were was tortuous. Texting, we were texting back and forth a little bit. You know, as I walked out of it. Kirk, I actually really loved it.
1: <laughs> Kirk was giving me sort of vague insinuations <laughs> in text over <laughs> what happened, which I then poured over the same way I do the trailers to figure out what I can glean from that was them. Sort and, of the idea you realized. Yeah. It, it turned out it was nothing. I couldn't figure anything
0: out. Yeah. But, the big thing I had with it, my my universal comment with it is. and and I think this is very true it's a beautiful movie it's extremely nice to look at it was lovingly Um, crafted for sure yes And I really appreciated that because I think it's something that's been lacking from Star Wars movies for a long time. I mean, and again, it's it's beautifully crafted. It's beautifully made. There are some scenes in it which are just incredibly well done in the way they combine visuals and sound.
1: I think my number one, just from a pure visual standpoint, my number one favorite scene of the entire Star Wars saga was in this movie. Those of you who have seen it can probably guess which scene it is. I have to agree, and it's the same scene. Um, And again, you can
0: probably guess as to what it is. The other one I really liked about it is I really liked the development of the characters and particularly the main characters in conjunction with it. I feel like, you know, Kylo Ren, like Ray, like you know, most of the the big characters in conjunction with it truly come into their own in this. They've mm-hmm. kind of found their personalities, and I'm hoping that that stays true into the next episode. I'm a little worried, as you know, are they going to try to move them when we take over with a different director? But I'm it's hoping it's JJ Abrams that. again, right? Is yeah.
1: doing the third one. See, here, here's what my concern is with this: is Abrams is famous for setting up cool concepts and having no clue where he's going to go with them. Like Lost is a good example of that. Um, <laughs> But, you know, he did seven, he's going to do nine. I, I kind of think eight might wind up sticking out as the sort of sore thumb episode that just stands on its own. Because it kind of ends, too, like it's a finale, you know? Not really, but... It, it sort of does. Like, everything's kind of wrapped up, and they're off and doing something else. And you could just end everything right there. You, you could get away with that. But yeah. there's going to be one more, and I I kind of feel like Rian Johnson just took Took the bu- the baton that Abrams handed off, and and almost literally in certain cases threw it over his shoulder instead of <laughs> going in a different direction with it. Yeah, uh, and I, did, I I have to kind of agree with you. I think he
0: did go in a little bit different direction. My comment with it is, I think it was, and and I actually like JJ Abrams as a director for the most part. I like most of his movies, but it's one of those where I think he actually took it in a better direction. And the reason I think he took it in a better direction is, to me, it was. It was craft-focused, again, sort of yeah. how was it crafted, and it was very character-focused. I really liked the way he took the characters. There's only one character in it that I really had a major issue with the way that she was portrayed.
1: Yeah, I know what you're talking about. And,
0: and we've discussed this in, and what it is, because I, I understood why they did what they did for plot purposes, but I really felt like they the character had more depth
1: if they wouldn't have done it, yeah, they, they could have handled that better. I agree. Um, well, well, we won't go into too yeah. much detail in that. I think maybe in a couple months we'll feel more comfortable. Once it's out of theaters, basically, we haven't seen it by then. Then shame on you, and uh, we won't we won't worry about it. It's, suffice it to say, the reception's been you know, lukewarm I think by your core fanboys, but I don't know, you and I both enjoyed it. It wasn't yeah. far from a perfect film. There was a whole side plot that just kinda didn't work, I didn't think. Yeah, and
0: again, I think part of the reason the side plot didn't work was part of my relation with characterization. I think that was yeah. part of the issue with it. I think they could have gone a lot done a lot better with that. Again, what truly struck me with it, and the the comment I have with it is at the end of it. Like thinking back to it, what I see are scenes, and I remember those scenes because they're beautiful. Yeah, and that was the thing, sort of, with it. And, and something I mean, to say it's beautiful. I mean, it's not like it's beautiful, like flower beautiful. I mean, it's beautiful in kind of a you know world is destroyed kind of way. Yeah. But you just, it's something that Star Wars has not had in many respects, and something that, you know, you look at a lot of sort of great science fiction movies have. I mean, take Alien. You know, Alien is truly a disgusting setting yeah. movie stuff like that
1: it's meant to be disturbing yeah. and, to, and to be unsettling to watch
0: and it's that kind of way but it's done so well it's so well crafted and again it's sort of so beautiful in the in in some sense in the way it's presented I think it's something that you know in many respects that's what Avatar is known for Yeah, um, yeah. and again a movie that was just into, you can see like sort of the loving crafting of it and the everything has to be right and that was what I really got out of it is just everything had to be right and some of the minor scenes in it and like little minor things that the that were done that didn't have to be done, that kind of you look back at it and go, wait a minute, that foreshadowed something. Yeah. I didn't realize it was foreshadowing something at all, but it
1: foreshadowed something. This is one of those movies that I've I've only seen it once. I I, I think my my real final thoughts on this will be cemented once I see it again. It's not like The Force Awakens where you, you see it once, five minutes in, you know what you're what you're in for. Yeah. And it pretty much holds true to your expectations. This movie is all about subverting expectations, and I think I need to see it again to really decide how. How much I liked it or or, yep. or or not? I have
0: to kind of agree, and it's uh, the my take of it is I think it's actually a worthy follow-on to Rogue One, and um, you know as being a, I think Rogue One was a very well-made movie. You know, again, I think it was it was well done. We all knew it was as i said. It's, we all knew it was like Titanic. In the end, the boat has to sink. Yeah. But the advantage to it is is this one didn't. You didn't know where it was going, and it allowed it to have some moments that were just completely unexpected. And I think that kind of takes us to our score. Is, yeah. you know, there was a lot that was unexpected in that movie.
1: Yeah, there was. So we <coughs> uh, we scored our predictions, and uh, the bottom line is Kirk came out at 15 out of 25 right. I had 14 out of 25 right. There's an element of subjectivity <laughs> in how we scored these. So w- w- one example I will give is one of them was we find out who both of Ray's parents are in this film. And uh, Kirk, you said uh, no, I think, didn't you? Right? Did yeah, you say- I said no. And I think I said I said yes. Um or we had another one that was Princess Leia doesn't die but she does leave the narrative. Uh, you know, that, that one is is a compound uh, you know, a prediction. So we scored these straight, meaning everything in the prediction had to be true yep. for to get a point for it. And 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 that's how it came out. So we won't go through them because, uh, again, spoilers, but it was a fun exercise. I think we should make this a, a tradition for yep. each Star Wars film. I think we, we definitely
0: will like do it. We've also discussed the fact there may be a future episode where we actually discuss the predictions in a little more detail. Yeah, we could do that. Um, and there may actually be a legal lesson associated with our predictions coming up in an episode. Oh, yeah, we didn't warn you guys that that was part of the reason we were doing this, kind of on purpose.
1: Yeah, we'll uh, we'll, we'll tease that out more uh, in future episodes. Well, our topic today is BitTorrent and file sharing, and I think this, this merits a little bit of background on what file sharing is I think particularly the, the younger listeners probably associate this more with BitTorrent and file sharing now. Yeah. But this is actually pretty old. Yeah, I mean, in many respects, I think the internet is based around
0: file sharing. I mean, you can effectively say that's what it was. And particularly in the early internet, most of what you did was file sharing. I mean, there was no web.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, the the main point of it was to exchange information and data and stories. Yeah. And this is back in the days when, before even dial-up, really, you had CompuServe and Delphi. Prodigy, yes. Prodigy. Prodigy and uh, uh, my uh, Prodigy in America Online, I think, were, were your first sort of consumer-grade internet services. But you had other business-grade services. And I had a, a good friend of mine in high school who was blind. And a lot of the utility software he used to kind of use computers and get through his day, he got off of CompuServe and other like online BBS.
0: Yeah, and the other thing to keep in mind, I think, is to we also have to do a bit of a technology background in conjunction with this. You got to remember also at the point in time we're talking about in sort of early days of the internet, we're talking dial-up modems, and you know if you were you know really knew what you were doing, you had a US Robotics because those were
1: faster. Yeah, that's a, and, or the, anything Hayes compatible. <laughs> really, I would I would say that general access to the internet started to become more available in the early 90s, probably 91 to 93. And this was mostly, you know, I, I had access back then v- uh, via local BBSs, yeah. where you dial up to like uh, someone's hosting software at their home via their one phone line. You can only have one person connected at a time and you could basically upload and download your email that way. And I remember the first file I ever downloaded off the internet was a copy of Wolfenstein 3D I got off of a <laughs> board that, that, uh, that ran out of uh, a community college my hometown.
0: Yeah, and that's uh, one of the things I think is also interesting when you talk about the wolfenstein and, and stuff like that. One of the great things about it and the terms kind of fallen out of favor is the old term shareware.
1: Yeah, nobody says that anymore. Yeah. It's, it's either it's either freeware or I guess that's really it, yeah. or open source. We open say, source sometimes, in some but, respects, but you can have stuff that's shareware or freeware that's not open source.
0: Yeah, and that's uh, you know when when people used to do it, you used to talk about the idea of shareware, and and shareware literally was usually games and relatively simple mm-hmm. games that you were supposed to share. I mean, it wasn't that there was any discussion of you know how do you share it, anything along those lines. It was hey, I've created this thing, please do share it. A lot of times the shareware was a you know first few screen levels of you know a new game that was coming out so it's Mm -hmm. hey you can play through the first level but after the first level you have to go buy the formal version and your first hit's always
1: free man (laughs)
0: Um, and you know now we have a lot of it I think when you, you bump into the apps you get into the idea of freemiums and that's kind of what shareware
1: was. Kind of, yeah, was Kind of a that, precursor. That model's kind of carried forward. So, so back in the day, if you had access to the internet, file sharing was mainly done via FTP, which you've probably all heard of now. It's it's way old. Uh, ba- back in the day, and probably still true. Almost every Unix or Linux machine uh, or distribution came with FTP by default. So, for for a certain grade of operating system, file sharing technology was just kind of built into what the system does. Yeah, and it it wasn't really considered that big of a deal. And I think it was because at the time, the group of people who knew how to access these things. Because there was a technology barrier just to get at this content. Yes. You had to know how to use the FTP command line protocol, which means you had to have access to a shell account somewhere, which you know when I went to I don't know about you, you're a couple years older than me, but when I went to college, if you wanted an email address, you had to march down to the computer <laughs> center and ask for it. Yep. You and know? That was exactly what we had to do too. Yeah. And it wasn't just handed out by default because most people didn't want them or even know that you could have one. Yep. And within two years after I I got to college, that had all, all changed substantially. I think I think my freshman year, you just got to pick what your user ID was. They didn't assign it to you at the time. Yeah, I was
0: transferred over, so sort of, it was transferring a lot while I was in college and in law school. Like we were seeing a lot of transfer from going to true internet and, and sort of acceptance of it. Um, but yeah, and it's, you know, I the thing I still always recall about FTP is that you had to like switch over to FTP. Yeah. You know, tell us the, the Unix system, I'm switching over to you FTP. You had to type in
1: FTP. You had to know where you were going. So you had to know a name or an IP address yep. for a server that had content. Once you got there, sometimes they required authentication. Usually not. Usually you could log in anonymously. Yep. But once you got there, it was just a command line file structure. The and other, you had yep. to navigate to the directory and find what you wanted and then know the right commands to download it in the right format. And then once you got it, you had to be able to uncompress it, unarchive it, compile it, run it. <laughs> I mean,
0: you had to know what you were doing. Yeah, there's there's a lot of... And one of the things to keep in mind is for those of you who may be younger listeners in conjunction with this, there is no World Wide Web at this point in time. The, yeah. the idea of Mosaic, the very First web browser didn't exist when you were doing this. This is all Unix code command line. You know, this was where you had to leave Windows and go to your command prompts oh, yeah. in
1: order to do stuff. And Windows at the time didn't have a TCP IP stack anyway. <laughs> so you couldn't actually get on the internet unless you installed WinSock and yep, then uh, WinSock, yeah, the, Winsoc. oh, Kermit. Kermit was Kermit. The, the terminal emulator. So yeah, it was it was a high energy barrier just to get online from your home PC. Virtually nobody did. And and then you had to know what you were doing once you got there. Uh, but and but this had an interesting side effect, which is that the files that you found were mostly put there by the authors of the programs yep. or, or less often the content. It was usually just software.
0: Yeah, it was usually software. A lot of times it was like small utilities, small games. Yeah. You know, I remember a lot of the things actually... I got the
1: ARGE archiving utility okay. off, of, uh, off of an FTP site. I remember
0: I got something that was a um, some kind of a um, cataloging type thing that I used. It was just a basic, like, you know, you enter data into it and it would store data for you. Um, But yeah, I think the thing you really were bumping into at that point in time is that the content being put up here was primarily content creators. Most of the stuff that was being put up here was software-related, and a lot of it was actually software-related to doing this. In some respects, I think you can kind of look at it and say... BitTorrent, uh, sorry, the the sort of downloading, you know, pre what we're talking about now, is kind of what 3D printing was maybe five or six years ago, mm-hmm. and the idea that you know at that point in time to have a 3D printer sort of you, niche, you had a niche, but you also had would have had to have gone out and downloaded the parts to make your 3D printer, yes. and to you know learn that again, you kind of had that high energy barrier. Whereas now, you know, you can get into a, you know mail order catalog and buy one that's ready to go. Uh,
1: the bottom line is through I'd say the the mid and probably closer to the late 90s, most file sharing was probably legitimate because, and by legitimate, I mean not violating anybody's copyrights because for the most part, any, anything you found was there with the consent of the author so you had an applied license or in some cases an express license to download it and use it. Uh, and, and the handful of things that weren't put there by the author, just the nature of who was online at the time, most authors just didn't didn't or wouldn't care if you yeah. put their stuff out there.
0: And, and again, I think it's uh, that's the real key is this was... The, there was no real copyright infringement necessarily occurring because the content that was posted on these FTP sites was intended to be downloaded yeah. either by the person that posted it or a person was reposting something that was intended for exactly that purpose. There really wasn't content being provided that people had an intention to protect and not be copied.
1: Well, the other issue is to the extent that there was any legal problem, I'm not aware of this ever happening, but should should a third party say, you know, someone's making a game and a copy of it gets cracked and put out on a BBS and, they, and the person who wrote the game once wants it wants it dealt with. There weren't that many FTP sites, and most yep. of them that were out there were associated with universities or other legitimate actors to where if you sent them a letter and said, hey, you've, you're hosting our stuff on your systems, what the heck, you know, they'd for the most part respond and deal with it, assuming they even understood what you were talking about. Yep. Uh, but as a practical matter, this stuff was hard to find. There weren't a lot of indexing search engines you had. Uh, the there, there's search. no Google. There's not even any no. Yahoo at this point. No, there's there's nothing. You had you had Archie searches to search some FTP sites, yep. and then Kirk, do you remember Gopher. I remember Gopher. I didn't use Gopher a lot. I, I didn't either. FTP was sort of the rage when I was in college. But then Gopher had a, a, a search engine called Veronica layered on top of that. For those of you who are of a certain age, you may recognize <laughs> the Archie and Veronica and, parallel. I, uh, was like, we, were jo- we were joking about it on the way over here.
0: I don't even think I remembered Veronica we were talking about I remember using Gopher a little bit, but I didn't even think I realized there was a search engine in Gopher. I think I usually would go to some place that I knew I had Gopher content from somewhere yeah, I else. I
1: don't think I ever actually used a Veronica search, but I, I, maybe I did. I, I want to say I i used Gopher before, but um, the bottom line is there were centralized servers that had all this stuff. So yep. if you wanted to get rid of it, there were a couple places to go to get rid of it, and that was pretty straightforward. Now, you wouldn't get it off of individual people's machines, yes. Um, but since you had somebody who was sort of policing the content of these servers, when you uploaded something, there wasn't that much content on an FTP site usually, and so whoever ran it would look at each thing you uploaded and either delete it or leave it there. And If it looked illegitimate, they'd take it off. Yep. That doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, and that was, I think, we
0: we talked about the idea of saying there's a few sort of technologies, I think, that that we, we think that hit that changed this world in sort of a fundamental way, but it's part of it's a confluence of all of them. One of those was the idea of decentralized file sharing. And, you know, what you're really talking about at that point in time, and probably the first at least strong user of it was Napster. But you had it coming in before then with just the the creation of the World Wide Web and the idea that you could host individual stuff on your computer that somebody else could download. Up until that point in time, you really had – you either were a client or a server. There was no such thing as both.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it's true. It's very true. And it, those those distinctions have very much gotten blurred now. Uh, well, let's, let's, let's walk through the sort of the basic... This is copyright. This is yak. Uh, what, what's our acronym? Yet another copyright? YAC-y. Yeah. Yet another copyright issue. Uh, primarily copyright. There could be other concerns, but for the most part, I don't think trademark really applies. There's not a, it was masquerading as the, the source or origin of the actual product. I mean, you, if you're going to BitTorrent, you know you're getting it from <laughs> probably somebody in Russia. You know? yeah. um, so... But but walking through the copyright framework really quick, if you've been listening to us, you know by now that the Copyright Act uh, is an act of Congress that grants certain you know. Uh, exclusive rights to the authors of creative works, and those uh, those rights include the right to copy the work and the right to distribute the work. And when you download a copy, you're making a copy, and whoever you got it from is distributing it or making it available. So uh, clearly, if the author doesn't consent to this, then file sharing is obviously a copyright infringement. I don't think there's any real serious debate about that. I,
0: I remember when I was actually in law school, and there was a little bit of debate when I was there and in conjunction with it as to who committed the copyright infringement. There still is and, kind of a question, right? Yeah and Who's that was making an the copy. Aspect. Yep, because it, the question with it was is if I took the copy, if I have a legitimate copy and legitimately on my machine. So let's just say I didn't even make a copy from something I have a legitimate copy on my machine and I simply post it to the FTP memory of my machine. Yes, mm-hmm. it's accessible, but I didn't make any copies and uh, the, the copy that I have is legitimate. The person who makes it is the person downloading. What you then bumped into, and I think this was a big thing, sort of, and and now we're getting into MP3s, and I think that's where we're really talking about this technology. You had the issue of now the person downloading it from you. Yeah, they're potentially the copyright infringer. At the same time, there was a lot of argument as maybe they have a legitimate use for this. So Mm -hmm. the example would be, and one that I particularly recall I had to do, um, I owned a copy of a computer game back in the day. And the physical disks were actually stolen from me, um, literally by a guy who then set fire to my apartment um, <laughs> stolen the and stole my computers and was later found guilty of 13 counts of arson. But one of those things that you, you get into with that is I legitimately owned a copy of the game. Um, it was then you know, stolen, but I still had it on my machine. But the problem was I didn't have the the access key anymore because I didn't have the disc anymore, and that was back in the day when you had to physically put the disc in. Yeah,
1: so you kind of need to have a disc just to play the game.
0: Yeah, and so the the issue with it was is you know do I have a legitimate need to get a code? I arguably did. I arguably did have a legitimate copy of the game. What does that mean to download an, you know download a code illegally and those those kind of things where you had it or even where you have a scenario where it's hey I own the CD and I just can't find it.
1: which what yeah that, that had <laughs> happened to me many. Well that and that gave rise to you know, some of the early content that was widespread was cracked versions of software where you don't have to enter you know the copy because back in the day you had to like go to the manual remember that yep. like when you ran a game it would say turn to page 5 and enter the third word and the fourth sentence on paragraph 2 to prove that you had the manual. <laughs> I forgot about and using then, the manual. Remember one. the paper was that weird paper you couldn't photo Copy yep. because then we'd not be able to read anything like the way uh know, like the way checks work and whatnot yep. uh, and then and then it was you know put the put the disc in so we can confirm that and people who own legitimate copies uh, quickly got annoyed with having to switch discs constantly while playing games and and would just go find a cracked version that had that part of the copy protection disabled so they could just play the game yep. well the side effect of that is if you don't have a copy you can also play the game
0: yeah and that's uh, that was one of the interesting things in the early days of this is that there were you know, I'm not gonna say these were not copyright infringements but there were ar- le- arguably legitimate
1: reasons to want them well, I think there's clear legitimate reasons yes yeah. now th- there's a question of proportionality how many of the people who actually get these cracked copies of games and whatnot are have legitimate purposes in mind yep. versus are just free writing
0: yeah and and another similar one and again I kind of like to pick on mp3s and partially because it's the you know mp3s to me was sort of the first occurrence of it I was in law school when mp3s came out and I mean I was already knew I was sort of headed down the roads of becoming an IP lawyer so it was something that very much interested me me at the time. But at that point in time, you did still have... Um we didn't necessarily have the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, but you had pieces of it starting to show up. Um, it was
1: legislative action. Yep. A- and
0: the idea that words. making a digital copy, like ripping a CD into your machine, was okay, but you still had software problems. And so the idea of, if hey, if I own this CD and it's easier to just go get the MP3 from somebody who has a better machine to do it than I do, I'm entitled to legitimately have a digital copy, not that digital copy.
1: Well, and let's let's back up a little bit, too, because this is not the first time file sharing is not the first time that the issue of consumer copyright infringement has come up. And, and you have to remember, the Copyright Act... Yeah, uh, tell me if you disagree, Kirk. Is generally intended to protect one commercial actor from misappropriation of IP by a competing commercial actor.
0: Yeah, I mean, there was no question that's what it originally was created for. I mean, it was to protect uh, effectively printing presses. Yeah, it's about each publishers,
1: other. basically, publishers and authors and and people involved at the commercial level of this stuff. Although as written, it's broad enough to cover a consumer who is infringing. That's not really the intent, and and the legal system, quite frankly. Isn't really set up to deal with that kind of defendant. There's no such thing as the class action defendant, where yep. you're going to sue an entire class of, of people that way.
0: Yeah, and and it is the you know the legal framework. I think you you got into with it was also the the idea of bringing a court case. How do you bring in a thousand different defendants? You know, there's, it's easy to bring in a thousand different plaintiffs. But yep. It's not easy to bring in a thousand different defendants because you got to find them all. There's a lot of requirements. Um, one of the big legal requirements is, for example, service, making sure that you actually notify people that a lawsuit's been filed against them.
1: Yeah, you're entitled to know when you're being sued. Yep. And if you haven't been told, then they can't
0: sue you. And there's requirements as to what jurisdiction you can be sued in. So is the fact that they basically can't make things, you know, horribly inconvenient for you and destroy. Well, how things do you even find like
1: people? So, so let's talk about. I, I, I know my conscious memory goes back to cassette tapes, which is the first form of copyright infringement I was ever aware. Of of and again for those of you who are <laughs> below a certain age back in the day we have these little plastic boxes that had literally had a reel of tape in it yep. uh, and you would put them in a boom box and hit record and making a copy of something meant yeah, there's only a couple ways to do it right you could either have the radio being played on your boombox and then just happen to be there at the right time. Do you remember doing this at night, like Oh waiting. yeah. Because there were certain songs you knew were going to get played. You, uh, you use
0: the top forty a lot. I think a lot of people. That's the reason you yeah. listen to the top. 40. And you, you
1: hit record, and the tape would just record whatever your radio played until it was done. Now this was frustrating because the radio versions were usually abbreviated, and the DJs would talk over them. Yeah. The quality was kind of weird. So there's that way. You could also just have two next to each other. Hit play on one. Hit record on the other. It sounded awful. And then later on they. Had the double the double cassette yep. systems where you could It was actually designed to record from one tape to the that's, other.
0: That yep. I think that's actually one of the really interesting things to think about is like I had a you know what's sort of classified I guess as a boombox. Yeah. You know they were called portable stereos I believe, but you know I still have it. It had a CD player. It has a radio and it has twin cassettes. It's designed. To record on one of the cassettes from either the other cassette, the CD player, or the radio directly to avoid introducing airspace between these. And I mean, that was a feature of these things. I mean, that was something that was sort of accepted. It wasn't
1: considered that big of a deal at the time. And I think part of the reason why is that they improved this later, but to make one copy, to infringe one copy of a cassette, you had to sit through the entire hour of the cassette. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, it had to play. I mean, you had to play. Now they eventually speed. had
1: double, you know, and triple speeds, but... You, you yeah. still had a significant time investment, right? So so if you were the one person in your group of friends that had the hot tape everybody wanted, how many copies were you really willing to make for your freeloading friends before you said, you know what, this is expensive, i got to keep buying tapes, yep. you're going to pay for the damn tape, and then I'm not going to sit here and do this for hours on end. Yep.
0: There was also some where they actually put effectively, and they did this originally with CDs, they actually put license fees in conjunction with things to be copied onto to deal with this. You know, the, basically the people who made blank cassette tapes would pay a little more money, and that We'll yeah. get, you know, reimbursed to artists and stuff along those lines, but you know, there was a the, the thing that I think that's really important to keep in mind about the cassette tape, and it's something that I don't think exists anymore. The cassette tape was designed to record mm-hmm. music. Was also put out on it. It was a format that was used initially, but you went from the sort of starting technology was records, which an, a person has no way of producing yeah. I mean, the amount of machinery it takes to produce a yeah, record. is only <laughs> the to eight track tapes, which were essentially the same thing. And reel-to-reel tapes. Reel-to-reel tapes, you could record, um, but again, they could just record sort of through built-in mics or you attached a microphone to it, to cassette tapes that all of a sudden were really intended to record something else. And
1: the equipment to do it was commercial or, you know, con- available to the consumer and cheap. <laughs> it was all at Radio Shack. Yeah. Everybody remember Radio Shack? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a thing. Um, and then CDs didn't really change this much. I'd say in a lot of ways, at least initially, uh, compact discs were worse than cassettes. The quality was higher. But trying to make a copy that would play back correctly was a real pain in the butt. Yeah, you really couldn't make
0: a copy of a CD. I mean, the other problem you had with CDs, they weren't portable. I mean, this is the age of the lock man. Yeah. You know, I mean, it mattered having the e- Early CDs your-
1: were very vulnerable to physical damage. Yep. And and I remember, I mean, you'd, you'd practically wear gloves moving early CDs and DVDs around because yep. one scratch would easily ruin it.
0: I had a, t- I had a device that was designed Remove scratches. It just basically buffed the surface and removed a
1: slight surface so that you could deal with scratches because that was a huge problem. Well, so how do we? So this problem obviously existed before, and uh, how did the industry deal with it? We had the same thing with VCRs. You could put a video cassette. If you had two VCRs, you could make a copy of a tape. Now, VCRs did something interesting. They actually broke the copying mechanism, because uh, at some point, MacroVision, which I think is now owned by TiVo or somebody, they introduced uh, a technology in VCRs where uh, when you played something from a VCR, it would introduce little pulses, electrical pulses in the tape signal, which your TV ignored. And so it played fine on TV. But when those pulses hit another VCR, it overloaded the gain circuit and screwed up the image that got stored on the tape. And so if you ever watched a copy protected or uh, really any VCR tape that was made from VCR tape. The image always was weird. It would like the it looked like the uh, the tracking was off and there'd be these long lines that went through it. And this actually wound up causing problems later when uh, at least for me I had an old TV in, in college that had a coaxial cable input, and that's it. Well, your typical DVD player didn't have a coaxial out. So I had to run my DVD player into my VCR <laughs> through the, the RCA cables, and then run the coax from the VCR to the TV. Here's the problem. When the DVD player sent that goofy signal out, it screwed up the gain on the VCR and corrupted my signal. So even though I wasn't making any copies of anything, I still got a crappy picture from yep. my DVD player. I had to buy a new TV, basically, to feel, to to it. Yep. With it. I
0: think one of the important things too is let's let's just inject a, a legal case in here too and be thinking about you know when this first started and we started having these questions about copyright was actually VCRs it wasn't even VCRs it was Betamax Betamax um, which is sort of pre VCR I think a technology one of, the, even, one of the first
1: format wars
0: yeah first format wars Betamax versus VCR. And um, one of the things I think you got into in conjunction with the with the Betamax technology and the Betamax case, which went all the way to the Supreme Court, one of the arguments was that effectively what Betamax was was not copying but time-shifting. It was the idea that you could move when you watch something on TV because it was designed to record from TV and that that was okay. Basically fact, considered a fair use. Yeah, it was basically considered a fair use in some respects by the Supreme Court. That was the first real legal issue dealing with this type of technology. And so basically, initially they found this wasn't a
1: copyright infringement. Yeah, you can do it. Well, and then with, with CDs, and you kind of alluded to this before, the way they solve the, they call it the private copying problem where people are going to make infringing copies of le- legitimate CDs, they just slapped a levy on it. They yeah. said, if you're going to buy these blank discs, okay, well, we're going to have uh, a tax, basically, for lack of a better term, that is applied at the point of sale. It's called a private copying levy. It's it's not that much. It may be a Buck, you know, yeah. for for a ten for every ten dollars you spend, and then that levy goes into a pool of funds that are then distributed out to the to the artists and labels and whoever else by ASCAP or BMI or somebody's yep. in charge of of that the you know the one of the royalty boards basically. Uh, People complained about this too and said, why should I have to pay a tax for a CD when I can use it for data instead? And they said, okay, fine. Then if you buy a CD that's not used for this purpose, a data CD, then there's no tax. But if you do that and you infringe anyway, you're in trouble. But if you buy a taxed CD that has the levy on it, you can make these copies and you can't be sued for infringement because you've paid the levy. Yep. And keep in mind, technically, these CDs were identical. Oh, they're completely identical. <laughs> so it's, it's just a matter of the, the packaging, whether you pay the levy or not. Yeah, so you know there was a lot
0: of issue of how well can they catch you. And I think that was one of the things that went through. Basically, none of this stuff worked particularly well, but it, it
1: suited the needs. It what satisfied we, the industry, at least, yeah. that there was a, a method in place to compensate them and that if people wanted to... You know, make copies. They could do that, but none of this works with with iPods and iPhones and and file yeah, share. And
0: it didn't even work in many respects with early. And again, I think we get into the technology of MP3. You got into the ability to now truly download songs, download large content over the internet. That's and sort of we mentioned these other things with it. The confluence of what we had here, the other things that came in, was the speed of internet connection. We started having broadband starting to become more commercially available. Storage got cheap.
1: So that, got cheap. Bandwidth got cheap.
0: And uh, and the other thing was is that we then had compression that started to work and decompression that started to work. Computers sped up enough that compression was usable. Because, again, like we talked about, when you used to have to download a file, you compressed the downloaded version, then you had to unzip it or do something similar to get it sort of recompressed on your machine. You couldn't store music on your machine. It was too dang big anyway. Um, Stuff along those lines. So what we now have is we have this confluence of technology which now says – You can download basically anything, even though it's relatively big. The technological barrier breaks. There's no longer any need for physical medium. We don't have the CD anymore. There's no 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 energy barrier. Nobody has to
1: sit there and make copies. It's all done for you. So all all of the sort of uh, behavioral and economic factors that limited the scope of consumer-based infringement are pretty much gone and and I think exacerbating that was the reaction of the content industries back in the '90s was suffice it to say poor.
0: Yes, I think it was understandably very
1: poor. poor, but poor. We,
0: we, we, the other thing with it is, so now you have basically this creation, and I think the key to it is is to keep in mind for the first time you had the ability to actually get a song on demand. And that's really what we were talking about. Previously to that, if you wanted to have a particular song, you had to listen to the radio to whenever they played it. Or you had to go out and buy a CD, which would have that song plus the rest of the album on it. Which you often didn't want or care about. Yeah, and then you had to move to it. Now, if you were also talking like cassettes... I cassette, say you had to physically you know zoom to it, not knowing where counter codes were and stuff like that. CDs at least gave you an individual track. But you know you had a lot of those types of things that said you couldn't get an individual music. Now, for the first time, it's, I can have this song when I want it.
1: and And how come the private copying levy concept didn't work for iPhones and hard drives? And I think part of the reason is, how do you set the amount? It's one thing to yep. say if I buy 50 CDs, I'm going to pay an extra $5. Well, I can only infringe 50, 50 CDs that way. But with a 2-terabyte hard drive, how much music can you infringe? Yeah. How much would you have to charge? And then how do you just you just get back to the same problem, right? Okay, well, I'm going I'm to not pay the levy and get the non-music hard drive and then infringe it anyway and how are you going to know? Yep, and
0: that's, I think that was the thing with the levy is you really bumped into this just it was practically impossible to figure out what it was. And you couldn't say an iPod with 2 terabytes is, as- is going to have two terabytes of music on it, because it might not. It might have a bunch of stuff that doesn't
1: infringe on it. I always thought, that you know, when this all came about, I thought, why doesn't the industry just take a step back and say, okay, there's a changing market demand for how people want to consume our product. How do we get what people want into their hands and maximize our revenues? But they didn't do that for almost 10 years. Yep. All they did was, was try copy protection techniques that cost millions of dollars, didn't work, and made the CDs impossible to use. They and felt- half the times were then purposely
0: bypassed because they
1: yeah. screwed up using the
0: CDs legitimately.
1: I remember the first one, I think, I don't forget who it was, Sony or somebody put out a copy protection technique that was one, trivially, there's always the analog hole so they're always going to be easy to bypass but but even so, then all of a sudden these CDs wouldn't play in a computer which is how people wanted to listen to it so you're spending money to make your product cost more and do less. What, yep. How does that make any sense? Yep, and, and, and you
0: get people who just purposely get around it like since it wouldn't play in a computer well then I'll run it through a DVD player that it will play on and copy it.
1: Yeah, exactly. And then they tried you know pointless lawsuits against people who are sharing and again this is where the shortcomings of the copyright act as as intended to hit commercial infringers shows up, you know, the industry lobbied Congress to get the statutory penalties increased. Well, who cares? If you can't afford to pay $1,000 per infringement, you can't afford to pay $10,000, and it's going to cost the music industry millions of dollars to prosecute one yep. lawsuit against one person.
0: Yeah, and that, and what you had at this point in time, and I think a, a thing to keep in mind is, you, you know, say what you like about the record industry, but what you had here was the record industry sort of not wanting to embrace the new format yeah. because the record industry— and and I think by its very name, Record was based around vinyl records. That was the technology that was what they were used to producing and everything that was sold for music was produced around the concept of the album up until they, this point in time. They
1: didn't seem to grasp at the time that, that the business they wanted to be in was the music yeah. business, not the selling things. Th- was it was, a, it was a branch of a retail. You know, yeah. it, was, it was the supplier for the uh, retail industry of physical media. And I think it took them a long time to come to grips with, we can still do this without selling physical things.
0: Yeah, and, and quite frankly, it wasn't them that came to grip with it. It was Apple. It, it was Apple. And what you had is, I think you had Apple, and in some sense, I kind of look at it and say, and I think there's, there's definitely people that would agree with me in conjunction with it, the iPod made Apple. Yeah. Because what happened was, they figured out, everybody just wanted the music. And Apple worked out, how can we just sell you the music? How can we make it? That you don't need the technology. We're going to sell you, yeah, we're going to sell you a hard drive, a specialized hard drive that does all of this, and there's software that's associated with it. But effectively, what you were really paying for was the music at a buy song basis. And there was a lot of resistance, even by individual artists. Do you remember
1: when, I remember Metallica held out yeah, for Metallica a long, held long time. Metallica held out, the Beatles famously, held out even longer. Uh, but you remember in the earliest versions of the iTunes Music Store, there was a huge fight over how many times you could burn a, a song you downloaded downloaded from iTunes to a CD, yep. and the compromise that was struck was any given playlist can only be burned like five times. Yep. Now, nobody cares now, because when's the last time you burned anything yeah, there was iTunes. also a
0: copy, I think, with eight. There was a limitation of eight, there was eight copies at yeah, once. Yeah, there, there were like all that.
1: these rules that the labels insisted upon, because they were just concerned, but people are just going to make CDs and not buy them from us. Everything was about buying CDs, and and that, that probably seems very anachronistic to most of us now, and th- this is only... 10, 15 years ago? It wasn't that long ago.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is this is really pretty. I mean, iTunes is not that old, and, and the iPod's not that old. But, again, what you had is it's you had a fundamental shift with iTunes twofold. One of which was there was actually now a model which allowed you to buy the songs you wanted and essentially provide the customers with what they wanted. Mm-hmm. The second thing you then had is because there was so much demand for that, it then moved into phones, it then moved into Every machine that's out there It's pervasive now Now it's pervasive And you know It's hard to look back before iTunes, and think about that—that that was how music was. You had to go into a record store, and you bought a CD, and that CD came in a cardboard carton that was four times the size of the CD. <laughs> you remember those, yeah? Um, I always
1: saved those. I thought those were cool. Yeah,
0: well, and that was the thing was to give you cover art, like cover art mattered, you know, stuff like that. Oh
1: yeah, the liner notes for but, the yeah. discs
0: are always a big deal, and stuff like that. And you know, you had used CD stores because you could physically resell the copies of, you know, that when you bought a CD if you didn't want it anymore, you could. What's well, another interesting copy. thing
1: that like the industry kind of didn't recognize at first is there's the first sale doctrine, there's not much you can do about a secondary market in CDs. Yeah. But with digital sales, you can. Yeah. And they did.
0: And and that's that's what we came to. And that's where we've kind of come to now. And I think the thing with BitTorrent now, a lot of what you have is you have consumers who are simply used to the fact that this content is
1: available in the way they want it. Well, even, even more so with BitTorrent, is, is, is music infringement that big of a deal with BitTorrent still? It seems to me it shifted more to TV and
0: video. Yeah. And part of that, I think, is just you know, broader brand brand bandwidth,
1: more storage space. Well, it's so cheap and easy. I mean, for the hassle you would go through to get a BitTorrent client set up and to be able to download stuff without getting DMCA notices from your ISP, for a buck you can just buy the song. So why wouldn't you just do that? The other thing I think you got
0: into um, in conjunction with, you know, the video, quite frankly, is... Video still had the on-demand problem. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of things weren't released on video. I mean, one I will pick on is Disney. You know, they wouldn't release a lot of their movies on video. They did the, the archive. You stuff still can't
1: like get the original, unmessed-up Star Wars on DVD. No, you can't.
0: But you can get it on, v- on VHS, which
1: I have. Yeah, so do I.
0: Um, Letterboxd, and- <laughs> no less. <laughs> I have two versions of it, both regular and widescreen. But um, the uh, the thing that you you get to, I think, with the video is. I mean, back in the day, and again, I sort of remember, you know, if you wanted to watch a holiday special, you had to go through the TV guide, figure out when it was oh, going to yeah. be, and watch the holiday that. special. We talked about that. Now, all of a sudden, you know, you could get that. You could get it if it was available on a DVD or on a VHS, but a lot of it wasn't. And so suddenly it's, I want that video... That's I think where video started with this is that music got it with iPod, but you still didn't quite have it. Video then sort of moved to it and mm-hmm. where you have now. Now I think we're hitting the point with things like
1: Hulu. Yeah, now know. streaming is where it's at, yeah. and owning like one physical copy, nobody wants that anymore. Now we just want to be able to click a button and someone sends it to me right now.
0: Yeah, and the advantage to it is is that now what we basically said is it's on demand. I mean, let's face it. I mean, how many people sit down and watch the entire season of a TV show the day the first episode releases? Right Who here, episodes anymore? Yeah, I yeah, know you episodes. did it. (laughs) So, you know, that's, you know, the idea of binge-watching, I mean, binge-watching was impossible up until five years ago. No, it's like it's back. become
1: a cultural thing now. What what I find really fascinating about the file sharing is it's, there are still problems. I mean, there's there's no questions that that file sharing is, is pervasive, substantially unlawful the way that it's done and, and that it's certainly there are people, not everybody, but there are people who would otherwise pay for the content uh, if, if they didn't have the option of getting it for free. I have no doubt in my mind that that happens. The extent to which that it happens I think is debatable. I think there is a large... Large number of people who download it for free because they can, but if they couldn't, they just go to a bar and watch it, or they go to a friend's house and watch it, or they would just not not watch it at all, and they yep. would do something else instead.
0: And I think that there's, there is some interesting stuff with that, and it's uh, what the reason I think this is a particularly interesting topic and a particularly interesting legal topic, and, and maybe this is a g- sort of good place to sort of spin us around back to the beginning and a lot of where we started with this. What I think we're seeing here is the law having real trouble keeping up with the technology. And never
1: really solving this. I mean, to the extent that there was a solution, it was a market solution developed by Apple and yep. just generally adopted by everybody. This is, a, I mean, not for lack of trying. The industry lobbied Congress hard to basically enshrine their existing business model in the Copyright Act. And as much as we complain that Congress can't get anything done, this is an instance where I'm very glad Congress couldn't get anything done. Yeah.
0: Well, and the place they did try to get something done, which was the, um, uh, what were the digital audio cassettes, you know, yeah, the DAC, was, yeah, yeah. which they pretty much Killed the technology because they tried to regulate it, got over heavily heavy-handed, and actually the reason we don't use digital audio tapes is that digital audio
1: tape d- is because d- CD wasn't regulated. Well, th- and there was <laughs> there was a time where there was serious concern that Congress was going to require all playback devices to adhere to some sort of digital rights management standard, which, you know, like you said, had happened to other media before and and had pretty much killed them off. So this is an instance where I don't know whether it was because of of Congress just seeing the light and not wanting to mess it up or being unable to agree or whatever, or, or the problem just solved itself basically before they got around to doing anything. But whatever happened, uh, the market pretty much came to the rescue yep. here and dealt with this problem uh, um, you know, more so than the industry was really able to. And the industry's pretty much gotten caught up yep. now. And I think there's a, a real key thing
0: to keep in mind here, and it's I think the important part of this episode, and one of the things to leave you with in conjunction with this episode, is this is a really good example of where... Effectively, the business model solved the problem. Mm-hmm. But the business model at the same time was very disruptive and very destructive to yep. an existing industry. We are seeing that a lot right now. And capitalism, about-
1: creative yeah. destruction.
0: But you know, you talk about stuff like Airbnb, Uber. We start talking about these sort of systems that are out there. I mean, let's throw Tesla in that mix. You know, mm-hmm. it's what we have. We have potentially incredibly disruptive business models where a lot of times the establishment is arguing we need a law to stop this. Yep. But what you found in the past in conjunction with it is we may or may not. If it's really that dangerous, you have the sort of the thing with like a digital audio tape where the law may destroy an entire technology, but then you have something like iTunes and said, you know, if the Congress would have come down and said, Hey, this is illegal, what would we not have? If iTunes had not been built,
1: what would we not have? And arguably the smartphone. Yeah, it very very well could be. Well, we're running long here, so we're going to move on. We could do. We'll probably come back to this topic at some point. We barely scratched the surface of the legal issues involved, and and by necessity, because this, like we said, was sort of just solved by the market. But we've got a couple of uh, of uh, comments here from our our, our various uh, social networks. We're going to go through, and then we'll talk about next week. So, our first question, uh, more of a comment, is from our, our good friend Ed in Grand Rapids. Ed is probably our most dedicated listener. <laughs> Ed, uh, I'm going to paraphrase here, but Ed says, uh, "Do you remember that time when TSR uh, tried to trademark the word Nazi?" It was something that at the time was the stuff of jokes because it seemed to symbolize the overweening greed and corporate aggression of TSR that they would try something like that. But I'm sure it was just them TMing everything on behalf of the movie studio they licensed the game from. Anyway, keep up the good podcasting. So what, what Ed is talking about is a TSR. For those of you who don't know, is the predecessor to Wizards of the Coast, uh, the Magic: The Gathering company. Uh, TSR was well, a company actually bought that, by Wizards of yeah. the Coast. The two companies merged. TSR was the publisher for the Dungeons and Dragons game, the very original Dungeons and, and Dragons. They at some point made an Indiana Jones uh, tabletop role playing game and I don't remember the the Nazi trademark thing specifically but this seems like something we need to investigate and talk about yeah
0: I think we definitely have to look into this and see sort of what it is and what they did um, It's I think it's going to require us to try to find a copy of that original um, you know, Indiana Jones game uh, which will game. clearly
1: be covered by fair use because it's for education
0: <laughs> <laughs> well I mean we'll actually try to find an actual copy I'm pretty sure eBay probably has one second hand um,
1: but yeah it's, yeah, we'll, I, we'll talk about that that's a good gonna one we're definitely
0: going to talk about this this is just too interesting
1: uh, next question Chris in Milwaukee says I am surprised by your attitude towards patent trolls I think this is a reference to our mailbag episode you should do a show on that with more detail uh, I'd be happy to yeah we definitely could yeah alright uh, Ed again uh, says I say jiff." this was on Twitter <laughs> so I had posted a Christmas uh, gif of uh, Philip Fry from Futurama saying is it Christmas gifts or Christmas gifs?" <laughs> and Ed says I say GIF. so uh, th- thank you Ed uh, for the record you're wrong it's gif um that's a joke because uh, I think the guy that invented uh, the gif format also says gif but I, I say gif and it's my podcast so that, that, that's the rules here uh, Krista M on Twitter says if you haven't done an ep ray the implications of pop culture references in books movies and shows like basically everything in Ready Player One and the smaller things like video games D&D art and Stranger Things that'd be cool why well, need you Kirk to finish watching Stranger <laughs> Things
0: <laughs> we have this problem that I've, I got so I, I, I actually don't for the most part stream but um, I did get the uh, uh, so I don't have you know Netflix. I don't have any of the sort of sites that are out there, so I had no access to Stranger Things. I have got the entirety of season one on DVD, which I need to binge watch. But convincing you to give my your wife kids to, give to your up parents. the TV. yeah.
1: Send your kids <laughs> to your parents for a weekend and just and get some some snacks and sit and watch it.
0: Yeah. So it's I need to do that, but it's it's along with uh, Star Wars Clone Wars and a bunch of other things. I also need to binge yeah.
1: watch. I've got quite the back catalog building up. Uh, this is a good idea. Uh, you know how you use these things, and uh, Stranger Things is interesting because the the way the the Show a shot there is in the background a lot of movie posters yep. and things like that there's uh, it's it, there's unique copyright issues in showing things like that in content and I think what what you know, studios and, and movie studios often do is reuse content they already own so they don't have to worry about the yep. copyright issues. But you do occasionally see, uh, I think The Office was on NBC and they would sometimes reference shows on other yep. channels and whatnot and I think there's a pretty strong fair use argument for a lot of that uh, plus artistic there license. Is, there is,
0: however, also a lot of, like I'd say also routine licensing that goes yep. on in conjunction with this. There's a well-established industry for how to deal with stuff like that that appears in it and I mean a lot of these studios have lawyers dedicated to making sure that they don't yep. screw things up. But
1: you'll, you'll notice at ABC t- typically talks about things owned by Disney for for good reason. ABC is owned by Disney. Um, Okay. Uh, The the last one we got, uh, this came to us from the Jurassic World movie on Twitter. They say... Twitter finds a way. This was because I retweeted their um, their trailer for the new Jurassic World movie when it came out, and for reasons I'll never understand, whoever's responsible for their social media account added us, so uh, <laughs> I guess we've officially made it because Jurassic World's looking at us. Did you see that trailer?
0: I have not seen the trailer yet, though. No, yeah, I've heard it, and I, I, actually, I actually really liked the first Jurassic World. I, mean, I loved
1: the original Jurassic Park. Yeah, I, I liked the, the reboot rebootish, soft reboot Jurassic <laughs> yeah, World. Reboot. I liked it. I like Chris Pratt. I uh, Apologies, Jurassic World. I was not overwhelmed by the new trailer. Uh, it was, it was lengthy and... Uh, just watching, like, okay, so there's a volcano and we're going to save dinosaurs. <laughs> I, I get it, but yep, it, it I didn't. See it. I'll i go see the movie because I've got kids and I want to see it. I love Chris Pratt. I like the characters, um, but I'm not not overly excited at, at this point. Yeah. But a mission accomplished, you're going to get my butt in the seat. That's <laughs> all you really care about. <laughs> all right, so that's it for today. Uh, if you have questions, please send them to us on Twitter at lggpod or email us at lggpodcast at gmail.com. You can talk to us on our Facebook page, search for Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, and you will find us there. If you like what you hear, Give us a review. We really appreciate your reviews. It helps other people find us and helps with the SEOs and all those other kinds of things. You can also find Kirk and I on the other social networks. I'm on Twitter at Benjamin Ciders and Kirk is at KirkDMN. And uh, I think that's it for today. Next time, uh, what are we doing next time, Kirk? I don't even remember. I'm not even sure we remember what we're doing next time. I think it's, we are debating what we're
0: doing next time and that's the reason we haven't actually settled on it. Well.
1: Yeah, I think we were going to originally do autonomous liability for self-driving cars and stuff like that, but we've got a, a stable of about 20 more topics to go through and it may depend on what, what you all say on social media over the next week or two. So yep. uh, we'll, we'll leave that up in the air. Uh, you'll be pleasantly surprised uh, once, once we decide. Well, that's it. There's the music. It's time to go. Thank you as always to the official LGG band Lorem Ipsum and the Scriveners Lorem play us out
0: the views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC its officers directors employees agents representatives shareholders and subsidiaries none of the content should be considered legal advice as always consult a lawyer this podcast
1: was produced and recorded at Cool Fire Studios in St. Louis Missouri